Good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Ayub. I'm the founder of Localization Fireside Chat podcast channel. Uh, through my podcast, I have the privilege of hosting insightful conversations with lots of um, uh, industry experts in the localization industry. Uh, I find it it's an incredible opportunity to bring together thought leaders of the, our industry and to tell their intriguing stories and to discuss trends, challenges, innovations in our industry. Uh, the localization fireside chat has become valuable resource for anyone who's passionate about the localization industry as we dive into the captivating world of this field. I invite you to connect with me, join me on the engaging conversation through uh, this particular podcast that we're airing today and in the future. So feel free to look us up on YouTube and your favorite podcast channels. We exist on pretty much all of them. Um, um, podcast, Apple podcast, Google podcast, uh, cast box, tune in. I don't need to name them all, but we're all, we're everywhere. Please feel free to like, comment and share, uh, this, uh, episode and feel free to check out our previous episode. We air one per week on this channel, one episode per week on this channel. Um, delightful and happy to have be joined this, uh, morning with my good friend and ex colleague of mine worked together previously. Uh, Jay Marciano, uh, who is a, a director of MT outreach and strategy at a company called Lingo out of Germany. Uh, Jay d doesn't need uh, too many introductions. He's well known, but I'll introduce him briefly. In addition to his responsibility at Lingo, um, Jay also the president of the Association of Machine Translation in the America, the AMTA. Um, Jay, uh, I'm excited to have you with me this morning. <laughs> And uh, it's been a while, and I'm glad to reconnect and take this opportunity to see your face again and be with us on this channel to talk about, you know, the latest in the industry and, you know, catch up a little bit on one-on-one -on -one here. So I'll let you introduce yourself, Jay, to the audience, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you, Robin, and thank you for the invitation. And hello, everybody. It's, it's always nice to catch up with colleagues like Robin and to uh, and talk about localization with, with a broader audience too. So uh, you've heard my name, Jay Marciano. I've been involved in machine translation for 25 years now, starting with a little tiny company in rural New Hampshire called Transparent Language, which is primarily known as a language learning software company, but I got into MT there. Um, my group was acquired by SDL, <clears throat> excuse me, where I spent 10 years there. And then I moved to Lionbridge, where I got to work with Robin for a while. And for the last two and a half, almost three years now, I've been at Lengu in Berlin. Um, I'm actually based in Bonn, Germany, where my wife's family lives. Um, but I spend at least a week every month in Berlin, which is a great city. So uh, tell me, like, at the beginning of your career, at the start of your career, so how did you, how did the thought you know, or where did you come up with the idea that I need to get involved in at the time? I'm not sure if at the time it was called the localization industry, probably it was called translation industry. How, how did you, how did this inception of this idea came along and what drove you to it? So I actually got into what I'll call the language industry uh, right out of college. So, so I studied English and, um, and I went to work in Boston at Houghton Mifflin, a, a big publishing company. Um, it's been bought and sold several times since, but I was on the staff of the American Heritage Dictionary. So I spent my first five years out of uh, university 
writing definitions of the English language. So, so an English, English dictionary. And I had already been interested in writing, interested in communication, but that's what really took me to a different level in terms of precision of communication. When you're trying to explain to people what words mean, there's nothing really more precise than that. Um, and then um, kind of, so as so many um, U.S. Americans who who grow, grow up in basically, well, when I was a kid, basically a monolingual country, right? Increasingly not so. Um, but you you become, you get into this industry by accident, basically, right? Because there aren't a lot of translation programs at university. There are just a handful of them in the U.S. Um, and where I grew up in New England, um, with the exception of some overflow of French Canadians coming down, you know, from the north, um, not a lot of, uh, not, I didn't hear a lot of foreign language as a kid at all, despite, you know, Italian ancestry, you know, Marciano is my, is my family name. Um, but I was very American growing up. And so I had to basically meet my wife, who's German. Um, when I was 23, um, that was my first real exposure to to the wider world of of language and so i started learning german with the with with the best possible motivation or you know the, the motivation of of uh, of getting a, a beautiful young woman to uh to to keep on seeing me and uh and after 4 years of of expensive telephone calls and actually writing letters so this predates email um, I moved to Germany. And so, um, and I went from being an editor to being illiterate overnight. I got on a plane as a professional editor, got off as an illiterate person in Germany, thinking I could speak some German and was horribly disappointed with the abilities that I had. Um, and then it took me about a year to become really fluent. I worked at the University of Bonn teaching English. So the way I like to put it is that I started off writing books about language for people. And then I moved to teaching people about language. Um, and then uh, we moved back to the States in 1997. And that's where I started at Transparent Language. And then I started working on software to teach people about language. And at Transparent Language, that's where I got involved with machine translation. I was the the product manager for a machine translation program. And I just fell in love with it. I just you know, you click a button and it translates. And um, badly at the time, this was 1998. Um, but still, there was there was this this possibility there, and and I just fell in love with the challenge of it. So I worked for ten years, um, writing or working on a rules based machine translation system, um, and then. At, at uh, transitioned over to statistical and over the past six years now with neural machine translation and always really trying to work within the industry to improve the efficiency of the translation process, knowing full well, because primarily I'm a language person, not a technology person, that the basis of communication, it, it's a human thing. It's from human to human. And that the use of technology has to make it more efficient, but it's not. It's not going to make it better. It's not going to. Uh, if anything, it gets in the way. But um, the fact is, we have way too much stuff to translate. Not enough professional translators, 
even if we had enough pr professional translators, the way content changes so rapidly, you couldn't possibly get things translated on time. So technology is absolutely needed. Absolutely. And, um, you know, very interesting story how you started. I'm not sure if I told you my story. Um, I, uh, I'm a technologist by background. Um, and uh, I was coming back from a business trip that's two or three decades ago. And uh, the gentleman sitting beside me on the plane, it was a two-hour flight. He manages a translation company at the time in Canada. And uh, two-hour flight later, he convinced me to join his company in an industry I didn't know existed. Uh, to me, at the time, being a technologist, translation meant IP address translation. I, you know, <laughs> you take a link, you know, he transformed, transformed my thinking from, you know, technology to actual languages. And I remember my first day on the job, uh, you know, I was told, so describe to me what you guys do and what I, I came in in the capacity of business development uh, for the for the company and I said, explain to me, what do you do? What do you want me to sell for you? He said, we take a we take a content from one language, put it into another language. That's all you need to know. And <laughs> things have evolved over the past two decades from that. And really, uh, the uh, that's history that's behind me. And, you know, I one of those individuals at the beginning of my career, I used to change jobs like any tech um, any tech guy, you know, change jobs like every two, three years, you move from one company to another. And I came to this industry and I fell in love with it. And I found it fascinating that I didn't, you know, I, I've played so many roles. I've, you know, I've done so many things similar to you that you feel like you don't need to change industries. This is the industry where you belong. And I felt, I fell in love with it. Like the minute I started working in this, in this industry, because you can see your tangible as a human, as you mentioned earlier, it's a human thing. You can see your tangible impact on everybody around you, the person who is producing the message and the person who is receiving the message. And you mentioned earlier, you know, something about, you know, the content and the amount of content, the vast amount of content that we need to treat. And that goes speaking to the, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, messages now not restricted to one demographic versus another demographic. The messages need to go to all demographics, regardless. Um, there is no exclusivity on content anymore per uh, country or per language group, you know, content now is available to everybody. And, and the internet played a huge role in connecting people and the ability to create that content fast. Then that requires us to do, uh, you know, I mean, you're familiar with the um, early stages of our industry 20, 30 years ago. If you did not speak, you know, this is where the translation industry came in, language industry came in, because we wanted to make sure that we Put to rest the idea if you don't speak English, you can't do business. And now the competition is next door, be it next, you know, next country across the globe. Um, people are, you know, creating companies, creating contents, creating businesses with the idea that this has to be done in many languages. Back, you know, 20 years ago, you created in one language and maybe that's it. You didn't do anything else with it. But you're right. If we were to take a look at all the contents being created today and we say, okay, we're going to assign a human to do it. We'd require a, the entire population of the world probably to do it. It's, it's pretty massive. Yeah. So um, in 2012, Google Translate estimated that their servers translated in any given day, the volume that all of professional translators did in a year. And so, and that was in 2012. Okay. And, and since then, you know, there, there's such a, a plethora of MT offerings now, and um, they're all churning away, doing stuff. Um, and so 
uh, one thing that so, so our industry is a very strange industry, right? So, so you take the top, what other industry do you take the top 20 companies and it doesn't add up to even 20% of the, of the revenue that that's generated. So, so we're in this fractured industry, but that's the way language is, right? Language, if, you know, if you go back to the, the Tower of Babel story, language fractures humanity, right? It, t- it takes us apart. And, uh, and one nice thing about calling the industry the localization industry is that what we're talking about is local phenomenons of language. Um, and and uh, one thing that I like to, to say is that when, when we're visited by aliens at some point, they're not going to sit up there circling the earth and say, why do they have 7,500 languages or whatever it is? What they're going to say is, man, they have a complicated language, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it's just, we, we have such a fractured industry. The subject matter is fractured. The, the, and I don't mean that in a negative, I don't mean broken. I just mean split into many, many parts, right? And so it presents us with all kinds of challenges. Right. So, so how do you find that translator who, if you're trying to get into a lower density language, how do you even find that translator? And yeah, yeah there are all kinds of. So, Jay, do you, do you, um, do you think that, you know, that aspect that you just mentioned, the fracturing and the many aspects that differentiate the languages, et cetera, is just a straight mirror of us humankind, um, of in a sense that, language is a direct portrait of who we are as a human and who we are as the language we speak, how we behave, where we're from, the demographics that started us, uh, that we came from and maybe transplanted and, you know, in a, in an intermixed world today, you know, you find a lot of people are, you know, moving around and, and we live in a moving society almost. So do you think, is it, is it, is it, uh, my question is it, is it by design? as a human, or is it results of something else that we got to uh, the fracturing in our industry right now? Oh, I think it's historic just based on migration patterns, right? But we're talking about things that happened between 50, between 12 and 50,000 years ago, right? So, so languages um, splitting up and there are all different theories about whether language came from one place and spread out or whether various languages families are so different that they spontaneously started in different areas. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Sadly, um, writing only goes back about 9,000 years, something like that. Um, but spoken language goes back. Supposedly the Aboriginal languages of uh, Australia are the oldest still spoken languages and they're like 40 or 50,000 years old. And so, uh, sadly, we don't have record. We don't have any evidence of that because there's nothing was written. Um, but uh, it, I think you can't. Animals communicate, right? All animals communicate. Even plants communicate. So, what's different about human beings is the complexity of our communication, and that we're able to communicate even about things that that don't exist right we're able to use these brains and 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 try to use this tool of language to get my thoughts in over to your brain 
Yeah. Um, and so our yeah, every, everybody is has their own personal view of the universe. Everyone has their own personal language. My family, we, we had a word that I thought was a regular English word. Turns out nobody has ever used it outside of our family. We had a word for when milk goes bad and when you smell it. And there are only, well, up till the point of me saying this in this podcast, there are only five people on the planet who know this word, and those, those, me and my four siblings. But we would say it's ilky, I-L-K-Y, ilky milk. Was and it just sounds good, right? It sounds right. It's like, oh, that's ilky, and yeah. and uh, and that was our culture, right? Our family had, in some ways, its own language, right? We had our own words. Every family does. So yeah, we're, we're in. Then maybe that's one reason why the industry is so fascinating because the variability is just endless, right? There's no you you can't possibly translate everything because. Um, not everything will ever be said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's the, the historical part of language, I'm assuming, and we'll dive into the uh, new stuff in a second here. And also there is the, um, the new word that these, this generation is creating as well. Like you, feel, you find there's like a brand new word being created and every generation creates their own word, depending on the circumstances that they're living at the time. And that's why we have terminologists. That's why we have people assisting in those new words in each culture uh, as you mentioned earlier in your experience, and how do we take that word and put it into create a new word in a um, in a new in a new language or in a, in another language? So, which brings me to um, the advanced fast forward a little bit here. And um, so you're you know you've, you've you've articulated it earlier that your domain of expertise and you've been working on this for many years is that technology assisted way of doing of doing translation. I've I've seen you doing presentations before. To our customers, to our joint customers in the past, and you know, um, and I gotta tell you, uh, you know, I've been very impressed of what you've done uh, and what the way you present the case for technology-assisted machine translation or any other language, generative AI, etc. And you touched on something uh, very important because you know I was at a conference earlier in Montreal, the Canadian Language Industry Association conference, and. You know, they, you hear the buzz, right? Technology is going to replace people. Those, there's two school of thoughts. Technology is going to replace people and or we're going to coexist. Um, the message that you, you, you shared earlier is that since 2012, we've been experimenting with these technologies. The industry has been around since then. It didn't, it didn't actually go down. It grew. Um, and so where are we now? What's the status now? So first of all, how do you get the date 2012? I'm just curious about that. No, the date 2012 that you mentioned earlier, just uh, you started working on machine translation? Oh, no, no. So I started work on tr- machine translation in 1998. Oh, 1998. So, um, yeah. And then, um, and then there, I've worked on, I'm now on my fourth machine translation paradigm. And okay. so, um, and so the, a different method for doing machine translation. Um, so, uh, but what was your basic question again? So, so, so where, just, where are we now? Where are we now? Okay, yeah. so so we're at the really interesting place right now where um, when we started off doing machine translation with rules-based MT, we were trying to imitate what we thought a professional translator did in code, right? We were trying to teach a computer to do the steps that we assumed a professional translator was trying to do. 
And now, so, so we're using the translator as a model and we're thinking, okay, when a translator reads a sentence, they first parse it in their head. They say, is this a question? Is this a declarative sentence? Is this an imperative? What is it? Um, and then they look at the words in the sentence and they might have to look up the words in the sentence, whatever it is. Everyone has a slightly different process, but we are trying to say, trying to have a computer do the same thing. And then at some point we realized, and this was around uh, in actually the idea of statistical MT goes back to the late 80s, but computers weren't powerful enough to really do it until about 10 years after that. And so then um, we had been collecting translation memories since yep. the early 90s. And so we had this repository of translation data. Yep. And then we started to use machine learning methods. Um, and we started off using very strict statistical methods, meaning that we had an idea for what the computer should do with this data. And, and uh, I won't go into the details of it, but we, uh, you program these learning uh, mechanisms, these statistical learning algorithms to basically look at language mathematically and particularly statistically, what words tend to appear together in the source language, what words tend to appear together in the target language, and what words and phrases associate with each other in, in, the, in the source and target language. And so we did that for a good long time, for about well, close to 20 years or so. Um, and then we jumped to the, the neural network. Um, and the neural network is where we are once again using not the translator as a model, but we're using the brain as a model, particularly the neuron, the, the, the individual cells in your brain, which you have supposedly 100 billion of those. And then each one of those has up to 10,000 connections to other neurons. So you have trillions of connections in your brain. And the fact is, we don't even really know what a word is in the brain. We don't. So, so we know that you associate sounds with ideas, but, and we, and you can do a functional MRI and see parts of the brain light up. When you think of a particular word, you can see that. But what a word actually is, we don't know what it is. It, it's, it's electrical signals in the brain and some memory of them, and then associations of those signals to memories, ideas, uh, images, stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, and now we have these neural networks where we also don't really know what's going on inside of those networks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so we're 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 basically saying we're going to give these networks lots of information to learn on but we're not even gonna really tell them what to learn. We're just gonna say, here's a bunch of data, um, as opposed to with statistical MT, where we said, use this statistical model. With neural MT, we say, here's the data, you figure it out. Okay. And, 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 and so then it builds up a neural network um, and, it, and it can improve over time by giving it more data or giving it feedback on the translations that it produced. Um, but in fact, it is, I don't want to say it's a black box, but it's a very, very dark gray box. Okay, we don't, you don't really, at any given point um, in, in the process, and this can be a very a neural network that has lots and lots of nodes to it, 
um, any one of those individual decision points is uninteresting. It's just numbers being changed to other numbers and being passed on. Um, but just like in your brain, if a little electrochemical signal takes place in one part of your brain, it's not terribly interesting. It's when you put them all together and you see results that things become really fascinating. So um, the am I to understand or can you elaborate a little bit on the um, uh, the uh, learning uh, and the uh, for the machine transition neural MT? Uh, is there a what are the controls that you can apply to a neural MT in your opinion that either speed up the learning beside given that massive amount of data or affect the or tweak, if you will, the learning patterns? Uh, is there such thing or not? So, so the tweaking of, of the network happens, is done by the network. Okay, so, so you present training material um, and the first thing that a neural network does is that it learns about the individual languages that you've presented it with. And that's one thing that's different about um, uh, with, with neural machine translation and particularly with large language models today. Um, monolingual data is very, very valuable for training because it allows the system to get a lot of information about how the words in that language relate to each other. So it kind of draws a, a, a very detailed three-dimensional map of, of the language with each word being a point in this three-dimensional graph. And, and so then you can also see the mathematical relationship between that point and any other point that it has mapped, any other word that it has mapped. Um, and so these systems come up with a way to envision language if you will, but it's a way that doesn't make sense to us, right? It doesn't make sense to us at all. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, next topic I have is we're hearing a lot about um, uh, generative AI. And uh, for our audience who are not familiar with generative AI, would you mind uh, explaining it in a way that, you know, the person who is not involved in it, just to get some idea on what generative AI is? Yep, and then sure. you can target on some benefits and usability and how we use it. Sure. So, um, and I'm glad you're calling it generative AI. That's a good, as opposed to calling it ChatGPT or, or whatever buzzword you want. So, um, but I do like to start with the GPT because that's a, that is actually, apparently OpenAI is trying to trademark that now, but it's, but it stands for generative pre-trained transformer. And so transformer is the type of architecture, it's type of neural network. Um, and then generative means that it will generate language. And the pre-trained is, is kind of the freaky part. And that is you give these things tons and tons of data and all you're really training it to do is to predict the next best word in a string. That's all that you're really saying to it. You're saying, okay, if I give you this word, what's the chance that this word comes next? And so it's able to build very fluent sounding strings of words. The thing that gets freaky is that as you build up the data sets and build up the size of these networks, you have what's called emergent uh, behavior. And emergent behavior is some skill that the network develops that suddenly appears. And what, what I mean by that is 
Um, th there's certainly similar cases with human learning as well, but something you're not getting any better at, not getting, you're, you're practicing, you're learning, whatever, you're, you're learning math for years, and suddenly you have your aha moment, and suddenly you have a breakthrough, and suddenly you're able to do math much, much, much better than you did before. And so with these um, large language models um, for any number of different tasks, they can be, they're trained on this, just on predicting the next, next best word. But when it hits a particular, call it size, call it density, whatever you want to call it, suddenly it has these abilities to do things like answer questions or has the ability to even do math and stuff like that because it's learned a lot. It's been processing all of this text, which is always about something hopefully, unless it's an e email from me. Um, uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's usually about something specific. Yep. Um, and so it can learn not only about the relationships of, of those words, but at some point, it's learning about the content itself. And so then at some points during the training process, or during the iterations of creating bigger and bigger models, they develop these abilities to do other things. Now, that shouldn't that sounds really crazy and science fiction-y, but people shouldn't get all wigged out because they don't have agency, right? So, so th th we're not talking about um, uh, any science fiction uh, uh, general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, AGI. So these are not things that are going to take over the world maliciously. These are computer programs that sit there doing nothing until we prompt it to do something. And then it, they can do crazy things. But in the end, what they're doing is taking what you put into it and transforming that. That's why it's called a transformer model into something that um, is helpful to you. So, but, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, so based on this one, uh, on, on your answer, and I was just want to take it to the next level a little bit. Where do you see uh, the and there's and you mentioned earlier about our uh, you know our industry. There are so many companies in our industry. Actually, CSA puts it at around nineteen thousand companies. Where do you see the industry either a uh, taking advantage of? I mean, I'm assuming and and I've seen it before. There are many opportunities technology presents. That's not necessarily to walk away from. Uh, this is something to probably embrace and try to build some uh, services around that and offer their customers. So where do you see the industry playing a role of embracing the technology, uh, taking it to the next level, offering it to their customers, and what role do they need to have in place? What, what, what is the mechanism do you think they should put in place to enhance it and package it and send it to the customer in terms of the service? Yeah, so, so I think we have to broaden the idea of language services. Right. Radically. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, so far beyond the idea of translation, localization and interpreting. Um, and, and really move into the generation of language, the generation of source content. Yeah. Um, so, um, one reason why I'm very thankful to be at Langu is that, um, what I see there is a company that's positioning itself well to move forward. And that is, um, every indication is that these massive, uh, large language models mm -hmm. like GPT and like BARD and like all of these gigantic models are so expensive to train 
and to maintain and to run. Um, you know, there's a reason why with OpenAI, even if you have a subscription and you're paying them $20 a month, you're only allowed to make, what, what is it, 25 requests every three hours using ChatGPT4, right? It's just uh, using GPT-4. It's just too expensive for them to run it. And so every indication is that um, the way to move forward is to use these large language models as a foundation. They are also called foundation models, which I really like that name, because you can build things out of them. And just like with training neural machine translation for a specific customer, Yep. You can also use a customer's data to train a model to do things that are in line with the way that customer wants to communicate. Okay, so um, so one thing, um, so for instance, so we, we have this translation program that looks like every other online translation program, except it can also do document summarization. It can also revise a sentence. You put in a sentence and it gives you a revised version of that sentence back. And we're working on, we're about to release um, video transcription and things like that, where you, where you're, the, the thing that gets transformed isn't even text anymore. It's a video with, with an audio, uh, with audio on it. And then what you get back is a transcript. But in all cases, you give the, the, um, this transformer model something and it transforms it and puts it into something else when it goes back to you. But every indication is that these models will um, become, well, let me let me pull that back. Not every indication. Um, so there, there will be a place for these massive models, but they're so expensive to run. ChatGPT, uh, GPT-4 supposedly took six months to train with 15,000 GPUs running the whole time. Oh. Okay, that's just, you know, you can count the acres of forests that are being burned down, right, to, to, to generate that kind of power. Um, so there are, uh, so smart, intelligent use of these means that we want to make smaller models that are specifically built for a given use case, a use case being a company that has uh, uh, generation use cases, translation use cases, certainly. Um, question answering use cases, any kind of things like that. All of these various things that you can go to, to one of these models and everyone talks about ChatGPT and you can put in a prompt and say, um, write me an email about this. But imagine if you had that email written just the way your company writes emails. Right. Okay. And imagine if you're able to get a transcript of a meeting back with with all of the names of the people correct because it because the system also was trained on the you know the company directory and things like that um and over time we talk about multimodal models and that's where they're trained not just on text but on other modes of information such as video audio um uh, images things like that and so when we get to the point which uh, so there are certainly already multimodal large language models where you can put in more than just language, but you still get out language. Or as everyone knows, there are things like DALI and there are these image generators where you put in language 
and you get out an image, right? But in every in every case, something's being transformed, yeah. um, and and uh, I think uh, it's pretty clear right now that companies will not want to be uh, donating their proprietary information to a system that could, in theory, or or even very directly, help their competition. Correct. So, so why would I want to be sending my prompts and my documents to something that's learning about all of this stuff, and suddenly my, you know, my competitor there is using the very same thing um, that's being improved because of what I put into it? And so, I think we're going to quickly move into a time when these large language models become portable and and become installed on an infrastructure or at least a private cloud mm-hmm. and so that they're used by a given community or or a corporation to do very specific things with that idea of local right with that idea of local to a company local to whatever that's right that's right absolutely you're absolutely correct but what i'm hearing from you is and the audience can you know can you know start getting creative in the way uh, they produce these services, they design these services to either A, transform a content and build services around that, that dedicate to their customer, either training specifically on specific things, uh, you know, for their, for their uh, and as you mentioned, you give a, a great example, you know, writing an email that specifically designed uh, with the corporate culture in mind, corporate style in mind, and then the output is much better, enhancing, the output of these uh, of, of these of these engines or these tools, I, I would say. Now, you know, I want to give you an opportunity, if you don't mind, on this podcast to introduce Langu. Uh, I know we've talked uh, before, uh, but just for the audience who don't know uh, Langu, um, uh, feel free to explain to us uh, what Langu does, and if there's somebody that is interested in reaching out, how do they do that? Sure. So, so Langu. Uh, Berlin-based language technology and services company is the way to think about it, Um, was founded in 2014 and has had the vision um, basically since its inception to help to get into a virtuous cycle of data creation with our customers. Um, So we are are an LSP, but... um, Actually, we're, you know, underneath our, so if we're Clark Kent, the, the suit we're wearing is an LSP, but the superhero suit underneath is the data in the, in the neural network uh, superhero. So the idea is to work with our customers to get into a cycle of collecting and generating more and more valuable, high-quality training material that can then be used not only to increase the efficiency of the translation process even more, mm-hmm. but also can be used to train these other systems. Okay. And so um, next week I'm speaking at Lokworld in, in Sweden. Um, last week I did a keynote for the ATA. It's like everybody wants to hear about this stuff. <laughs> and um, and and the thing I'm talking about next week at Lokworld is what we call a super segment. And a super segment is one that we can generate with technology so confidently that you wouldn't necessarily pass it through untouched 
to to um, delivery, but you can give your what we're now calling linguist as opposed to translator, mm-hmm. and and even more so expert linguist. Give them the task of hey, we know these things make mistakes, but we are we are very sure that this is a good translation, but we need it to be checked for accuracy and for context um, in in all of the languages that we produced. Uh, And then when we get that feedback, uh, so we're in a loop with, with, you know, everyone talks about human in the loop. We prefer to say expert in the loop um, because if if I were the human in the loop for an English to Chinese translation system, it would not go well. Right. And and so, and so that's why it's important to say an expert in the loop, I think. Um, uh, And so what we want to do is generate more and more data and then be able to train these systems to do more and more things Mm -hmm. with the long-term goal being this thing, something that our uh, CEO articulated years ago, this idea of an AI assistant, this idea of something that can, um, uh, you know, if, if you were to go to the extreme end, as opposed to say, I'll have my people call your people, it would be like our AIs will just fight out the basic stuff. And then we'll get together and talk about the important stuff or something. But that's, of course, that's way out, right? But right now, where everybody's wondering about the effect that generative AI will have on the workplace, um, we're producing tools that simply help you to generate things quicker, more efficiently, um, and with the tone and with the vocabulary and with the language that reflects your company and what your company does. Well, great. Thanks for the introduction of uh, Lengu. I hope uh, my audience take interest in your introduction and reach out. Um, two more topics, if you don't mind, uh, just uh, trying to uh, address them here, which is the future of our, uh, where do you see the future? If you look down the road, I mean, we're all, you know, it's, it's because you work in the industry for such, a, for such a long time and you've seen so many technologies evolve, et cetera. The evolution of our industry, if you look like five, 10 years down the road, where do you see the industry heading um, from where we are right now? So yeah, five to 10 years, oh, I know. <laughs> that, that, that's a long time. Years. <laughs> so, so Ray Kurzweil, the, the guy who invented optical character recognition, not single-handedly, of course, but um, has been a futurist now. And I think he's still at Google, but I'm not sure. But um, he said in an article in, I think, 2003, that our rate of technological advance doubles every 10 years. Okay, so that means that me, a kid who was born in the 60s, became aware of technology in the 70s. That means that right now, if we if we say our rate of technological advance was one in the 70s, and it was two in the 80s, and it was four in the 90s, and so we're, we're now at 32 times the speed of technological advance, and in 2033, it's going to be 64 times that level. So when you say look out 10 years, it's like, geez, we're going to be developing things twice as fast as we are now, if Kurzweil is correct. That's correct. Um, and so, so I would prefer to look out, let's say, two years. Okay, so let's look out a much shorter amount. Two of years. <laughs> and so, 
And so one thing that, that I've said is um, that I, I like the, the sound of it is that we're entering the post, post-editing world. And what I mean by that is post-editing has been a phenomenon in our industry. And now everyone's a post-editor, right? So, so the, you can use uh, ChatGPT to generate an email, and then you have to go over it and, and look at it very carefully. So people who are copywriters and marketing people and, and any, anything that you can generate with these tools has yep. to be worked over very carefully. So, um, and, and I think what we're going to be moving towards, and, and I do think this will be quickly, is that the idea of a source document that gets translated into multiple target languages will start to evaporate that idea because in that initial prompt that you make to this large language model, you can say, um, do this thing that I'm asking you to do for these different geographic markets. And it would already come back localized in terms of language, but potentially also localized in terms of content. And the example that I gave off the top of my head, but I, most of my good ideas are like that, right? The things that just pop up. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. So I was talking with, um, I was doing a talk on this and I said, okay, so you, you've asked uh, an AI to come up with a marketing initiative for a car for the Mexican and the Canadian market. In the Mexican market, it's going to talk a lot about the air conditioner. In the Canadian market, not so much, right? <laughs> and so, we so, use conditioners in Canada. <laughs> so, well, so not as much, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> right. So, um, and so how would it know that? It would know that because part of its training material would be all of the previous Correct. marketing initiatives that you've done. And then in terms of this idea of multimodal data, you can also add metadata. So how successful were those marketing yep. uh, events in the past? And so when you say, please, and I always say please, because I'm too polite when I'm talking with ChatGPT. Um, uh, so create a whatever and do it in these languages or specifically for these markets. Then the idea of translation or localization gets kicked down the road a little bit, okay? And, and that's where the source material is initially generated in multiple languages for multiple locales. And this is where we will absolutely still need and always need, as far as I can see, this expert in the loop. In the loop. Yeah. Right? It's funny. Funny you mentioned expert in the loop. My next episode is going to be with the uh, university professor teaching revision linguistic revision. And, uh, you know, there's still a university, not many of them, but there's still universities producing uh, or have curriculums and, you know, uh, degrees in, um, in in languages, specifically here in Canada, as well as around the world, uh, US, etc. Um, producing these uh, or graduating these individuals which are very well needed in the in the industry today and in the future. I'm hoping that academia can update the curriculum a little bit to introduce you know, to move away from the old traditional way of teaching, you know, the language uh, language profession to, you know, making somebody a translator to include things like the latest AI tools, the latest, you know, that post editing that you talked about, the post editing generation. 
to take it like uh, to take it as part of the curriculum, not as something that I have to deal with down the road kind of thing. So, yeah, it's also important to remember that also in, in keeping with this idea of a fractured uh, um, industry is that we don't move forward uniformly. Right. So so there are still perfectly successful translation companies that that you that don't use any MT at all. Right. And so, right. And so, um, and, and there's a, a great quote by uh, William Gibson, Canadian American. So fits for this. So the author of, uh, he gave us the word uh, cyberpunk, I think, and stuff like that. So a science fiction author. And, um, and he said in, um, in The Economist, I think in 2001, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And, and that, I think, is very important for people to remember. We're going to continue moving forward. Um, and and what there will be place, uh, room for people all along the spectrum of embracing these technologies. From the, the, you know, we talk about the bleeding edge, the people who are way out front pushing that. And then you talk about the people who are very hesitant to get involved with technology who might uh, only now be implementing translation memory or something, right? Or something like that. Um, and so the technology will move rapidly. Our response to it will move much slower than that. And, and your mention of uh, um, university programs, um, that will lag as it always does. But think in terms of things like laws have to, um, our societies will be um, reacting years later than, than ideally they would. So, so just in terms of um, copy, copyright protection and things like that, and with these models, like if it happens to generate something that Ernest Hemingway wrote, basically verbatim, um, is that a copyright infringement or not? And and uh, and if a self-driving car goes through a bakery window and 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 takes out all their muffins, um, who's responsible for that? Is it the driver who had it on autopilot, or is it the software programmer, or is it or is it Elon Musk? Right? Yeah. Who's who who gets the bill for the muffins? Um, and and so all of those questions are going to take probably probably decades to answer. Absolutely. And you know what, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, we are in a transformative, uh, and as you said, technology is accelerating in development quite rapidly. Uh, you know, the, what we know today may not be the same that what we know in six months, a year or two years down the road, or maybe, you know, the 10 year vision that I gave earlier, that would be like completely night and days. And we probably wouldn't recognize what's around us by then. Uh, but yes, uh, there is the thirst to continue developing. And I'm talking about the market in general. Uh, there's a thirst to continue developing, continue driving innovation in our industry forward. And there are generally is driven by the demand from the market uh, generally, because we as a service industry, we respond to what the market generally tells us they want or the indicators that we receive from the marketplace. So in summary, from what I'm hearing from you today is as technology continues developing, continue the evolution, uh, expert will always be needed and experts in our industry will always be, 
you know, the, the, the roles and the responsibilities will change over time, but you always need human to be uh, in, in, in the loop, as we said earlier. Um, and the jobs will not be the same, that's for sure. The job's going to be changing. Uh, the roles will be changing. What we know about a revisor or a translator, they become something else tomorrow, prompt engineers, etc. But there will be a role to play for human. This is not going to be in an uncontrolled environment that's going to be within a specific way of offering these services in a, in a customized way to their customers, to, the, to their end customers. Did I get that correctly? Yeah, I will say they would contribute. <laughs> and, and right. Um, so, so, um, so, so I think there are great opportunities. The, the important thing is not to be afraid, right? The important thing is to, is to, this might not be your cup of tea, right? But being aware of it is important. Right. And understanding its strengths and weaknesses are important. So, so AI is going to become like the telephone was, you know, 20 years after it was developed when everybody had a telephone. If you didn't know how to use a telephone. Um, Great example. Right. You, you know, what were you doing if you don't know how to pick up a phone when it rings? Right. And so, and so we will be, technology has that effect, right? So, so we all have one of these in our pockets, right? Oops, you can't, there you go. Yeah. We have one of these in our pockets. Um, and they've only been around since 2009, right? A smartphone has only been around since 2009. Um, and yet you can't really imagine your life now without one, strangely, right? And so um, this will follow a similar pattern. And whether you choose to be on that cutting edge out front, whether you choose to um, follow behind and, and kind of, uh, you know, taking advantage of, of the learnings of that first group going out, um, or whether you decide to stay behind and provide more traditional services for customers who want them, there's going to be room for a lot of that stuff. The question is, where will the growth markets be? And very likely, those will be closer to the front of that, those efforts as opposed to at the back end. Great. Um, we're coming up to time here, Jay. I want to thank you so much. It's, uh, you know, I can talk to you for days on this topic. And uh, it's very interesting when we talk about innovation and the latest in our industry and how uh, we are going to move uh, to the future in terms of technology, human resources, academia, etc. And it's all in an impact all areas of our of our business, that's for sure. So thanks so much. I really want to thank you uh, for your time today with me on the on the podcast. And you are welcome to come back anytime. You don't need an invitation. And to um, announce something or to share with us the good news about any uh, new innovation that you might have on the radar. Any last uh, comments from your side, Jay? Um, there, there's so much fluffy information out there about this stuff. So I would simply encourage people to try out the technologies, to really try to learn about what they are to come up with their own opinion about what they are and, and, and to imagine themselves playing a role moving forward with it because nobody knows what all of these various jobs are going to look like moving forward. Uh, and so it's up to us to define them as we move forward. And, and I think, um, you know, everybody has something to say there. And so I, I would simply encourage uh, people not to be fearful and instead to be curious and, and to and to really try things out and, and figure out where they want to go with this stuff. Great advice. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. 
with this uh, comment from Jay, we wrap this recording. And thank you so much. Please uh, uh, subscribe and uh, comment and share this content uh, uh, as you see fit. Thank you so much.